Just to read to you very briefly from Exodus 20. It begins and says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then we've proceeded through six of the commandments so far. We get to the seventh and verse 14, where it simply says, You shall not commit adultery. Jumping over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I want to read to you from verse 9 to the end of that chapter. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Then Paul imagines, or perhaps is quoting things he's heard in Corinth. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, if we're sexual beings, then why don't we just do what we feel like? And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Last week, uh, if you were here, we were looking at the sixth commandment, do not murder. And um, there's some pretty heavy-hitting, hard-hitting truth in there about the preciousness of life. And having preached it, I kind of breathed a sigh of relief when I was done. And then I suddenly dawned on me what I was coming up this week. And I suddenly, it suddenly clicked. And at first, as I was beginning to think and prepare um, to, pr- to preach for this evening and for the for today. I felt a sense of dread, if I'm honest, um, for many reasons. But as I began to pray and prayed with Jeremy and we began, I began to think about what to say this evening, that sense of dread really gave way to uh, anticipation and even excitement because of the feeling I have that as we open up the difficult subjects, that the ones that touch us and uh, where we sometimes feel most vulnerable, most weak. Uh, that is where God's Holy Spirit begins to work in extraordinary transforming power and um, really felt like God was speaking to people uh, quite clearly this morning. And I trust he's going to be doing the same thing this evening. There really isn't much need for me to labor the point on how this is relevant for us. I think we all feel it immediately that we start to talk about uh, the issue of sexual brokenness and the reality of this in, in, uh, in our culture, but also in our own lives. Um, and the Bible is so 
honest on this particular theme. I mean, it's honest on all themes. I'm not going to say anything else. But it, there is such a candid uh, forthrightness about the way the Bible just opens up the brokenness of humanity in this area. And doesn't try and whitewash it. And you see that particularly in how many of the heroes of Scripture were broken people. And not least in the area of their sexuality. And you know, one of the guys that so many of us count as a hero of the faith is, is David. David's life was marked by a brokenness in his, the area of his uh, adultery with Bathsheba and all the consequences that spilled out of that. And one of the things you can treasure about the scriptures is that it does not seek to, um, ha- it does not seek to write hagiographies of the men of God and women of God in there. It seeks to tell us the truth about them and the way that their sin actually caused more damage, and the way God fixed them and put them back together if they repented. There is such, such truthfulness in there. It's one of the things that really verifies the Bible to me, is that no one would make this stuff up. You wouldn't write about a great hero of the faith and then start to talk about his failures in the way that he does about someone like David. I know also from life experience how... This issue is just touching so many of us. And even people who you feel should be on a level where they're beyond temptation, areas of sex and sexuality, are often those who fall the hardest. There was a family friend of ours when I was growing up, a pastor of another church who my dad considered a close friend, who committed adultery with the lodger who was staying in their home. And it led to terrible consequences in his life. He lost his ministry. He lost his family. After some years of restoration, he was, you know, and this is how God works. God was kind to him. A pastor again, a repentant pastor, and a humble pastor, but a pastor again. But there were certain parts of his life that could never be put back together. And he lived alone, and he died alone. He was found dead way too young found dead and alone. And I can't but help but think that there was a connection in the sense that that man's life deteriorated in so many ways. And that's just one of many stories we could tell of the, the damage and the seeping effects of sexual sin and how it touches us and how it spills into our, our lives and, and hurts everything. I want to speak to that and speak to our hearts this evening But I feel that we need to take a step back to begin with. Because we can't really speak about sexual brokenness until we've acknowledged that there's some kind of ideal. Some kind of working situation. The Bible puts across to us, of course, the ideal of marriage and of sex within marriage. And that's exactly the issue that's contested in our age. And so I want to speak to that, first of all, before we start to dig around a bit in terms of what's going on in our own hearts. And the question I need to ask is, why why is it that Christians make such a big deal of marriage and sex? Why is it that we're so often perceived to be talking about these issues and, and maintaining some kind of outdated moral stance on these issues? Because anyone with even the most superficial observance of the culture we're in will have seen that marriage is has plummeted in its sort of significance and importance in the public mind so that fewer and fewer people are are wanting to enter into marriage these days. 
And uh, it's, it's viewed as an outdated institution. People even make intellectual, academic arguments of saying that it was never, you know, it's not part of our kind of, uh, it's not a necessary institution. It's just something that we kind of created at some point in the dim, distant past as a convenient way of structuring our social life. But since we know that, we can also, we can also do away with it as we progress in our evolution or whatever, however it's phrased. And so marriage itself is, is under constant attack and criticism. And along with that, there is just a deep, deep fear that many people feel about the possibility of being married. A fear people feel around commitment. One of the things that characterizes people of our generation is that they generally would only consider marrying if they found somebody perfect because of the likely uh, future that a relationship will end in divorce. So people have raised the bar on even considering marriage such that actually very nobody qualifies. So why fewer and fewer people are marrying. And along with that, there are, of course, the, the ways that our culture shifted in terms of our view of, of monogamy. You know, there was once a time when you would only have one sexual partner in your life, the person you're married to, or if they passed away, you'd, you'd be... Uh, you'd, you'd obviously have more than one if you married again, but that was that was the norm, and it was rare to be to have a different kind of lifestyle. But increasingly, we're seeing not only intellectual movements but also cultural movements towards a completely different system, a different setup. And while people fall short of arguing for polygamy, which is to have multiple spouses, people put forward very strong arguments for what is technically called polyamory, the idea that you can love more than one person at the same time, or certainly in sequence, and that you can have multiple partners. And so we've seen the hookup culture emerge, and uh, it's hard to escape from. Even if you believe something different, it's all around you. And just as, you know, the way the argument goes is, you've heard of the paleo diet? The idea that once we were cavemen, and if we, if we as cavemen ate you know, meat off the bone and nuts and berries that we foraged, and therefore that's probably the healthiest way to eat. So also people make the case that marriage was a late thing that came into our, in our, into our history as, as, as humankind. And that before that, we didn't bother with it. We just slept with anyone we felt with and could shack up for a while and then move on and all the rest of it. And you look at the monkeys. This is how monkeys live. So isn't this exactly how we're supposed to live? And we kind of have to answer that before we can even begin to look at our brokenness because we have to look at the, the issues that underlie it. And how are we to answer this? How are we to kind of make a case for something that seems so 1950s or so kind of outdated and traditional, conservative? And really, my answer would not be to approach it on the level that people are even making having this discussion. I don't even want to begin to engage with somebody who shares an entirely different worldview on this issue. If you think that we are just evolved animals, then of course, and there is no God, then of course, it's anybody's guess what is the best way for us to live. And, and we, we can't really have a, a meaningful discussion. But as Christians, we start from a different view. We believe in a supernatural world. A world that is infused with the meaning and order of the living God. And a God who's spoken into that world in such a way that we know his heart and his, his mind and his intention for us. And I can only stand on that conviction when I make a case for these 
things. And I want to quickly show you what the Bible teaches and why we count marriage as precious and why we count sex as precious within the boundaries of marriage that is lifelong and committed. Let me tell you the first thing. It's that in terms of what we believe, that marriage gets its significance because, primarily because of Jesus' relationship to his church. Now, that might strike you as a slightly odd way of looking at things. A lot of people think that marriage just, as I said, erupted at some point in history, was invented, essentially. But the way Jesus teaches about his own relationship to the church is he describes himself as the bridegroom. You remember the first miracle Jesus ever performed was turning water into wine at a wedding feast. Did you know that The job of providing wine at a wedding was always the role of the bridegroom, the man who was to be the husband. Of course, there was a great shame on the man that day who ran out of wine. He hadn't provided enough for his guests. But when Jesus stepped into the breach and started to be the supplier of the wine, he was beginning to communicate the reality of him being the husband to people, the church, which of course is a picture that he picks up again and again throughout the Gospels. And when you see the way the Bible ends and the great climax of history, it ends with a marriage. It ends with Jesus being joined to his church for all eternity. And the way theology works, of course, is that you understand the big patterns in God's mind that are then reflected in creation, not the other way around. And if we understand that marriage was always about Jesus and his church, it infuses earthly marriage between a man and a woman with deeper significance than you can possibly imagine. Which is why adultery is not just a mistake. In Christian thinking, adultery is sacrilegious. It's taking something that's holy and sort of casting it on the ground. There's the first thing, that it's about Jesus and the church. There's a second. Marriage is God's solution to loneliness. When God created Adam, he said it's not good for the man to be alone. And then he supplied him with a woman to be his companion in life. Now, I would never want to make the case that marriage is the only answer to the loneliness we feel. Probably most people in this room are single, and some of us feel a call to singleness and will potentially be single for life. And there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. But we need to double down in making a strong case for the importance of marriage, which is why I'm speaking positively of this. And what the Bible shows us is that the marriage relationship has the potential to be the safest possible human relationship in which you can bear your very being to another person without fear of criticism or of shame or of rejection. The Bible talks about it in the language of uncovering one's nakedness to another person. And of course, there's a physical element to that. But the language has a deeper resonance on the soul level. But there's a sense in which when you enter into the protection of the promises that you've made one to another, you can bear your soul to another person in absolute safety. And you've got to think, well, if that's the case, if marriage is one of the great solutions to the problem of loneliness and isolation... And not the only one, but one of the greatest solutions. Then when we look at the world around us and see the epidemic of loneliness, 
doesn't it seem to walk hand in hand with the breakdown of marriage and the fact that people no longer want to enter into marriage? Isn't it weird that even in the last few weeks, our prime minister has appointed a minister for loneliness? You think, what, what day and age do we live in that there is such an acute epidemic of loneliness that we now need a government minister to try and fix the problem? And I think that only makes sense within a world in which the normal human relationships that should exist in society are fracturing, beginning with marriage, but also the family, the nuclear family, the extended family, and all the disintegration that's happened on that level. And so adultery is not only a hurtful thing to do, it is, it is the deepest form of betrayal because of the vulnerability of that relationship. Here's the third thing about marriage. Marriage is mission. The Bible shows us in the earliest pages when God created marriage that he gave Eve to Adam and the language he uses is that she was created to be his helpmate. Now I love that word. It's often viewed as a disparaging term but it isn't at all. The word is used about God most commonly in the Bible and it's often used to speak about his role in warfare. That when men are going into battle God comes along as a helpmate to aid and support his people in, in, in warfare. And the picture is of two people, therefore, when you put it within the context of marriage, somebody whose life is on mission, having another person come alongside them to aid with the calling and mission and destiny that is on their life. And my favorite image of this is, is the image of an armor bearer. There's a story of Jonathan, who's Saul's son, Saul's king at the time, and the Israelites are at war with the Philistines. And Jonathan sees some Philistines across a ravine. And he has this moment of insane courage where he thinks to himself, we can't just leave them there. We've got to go and deal with them. And he turns to his armor bearer and says, sort of describes his slightly crazy plan to him. And the armor bearer responds, I am with you heart and soul. And so they enter the fray together, both of them covering one another's back. And that's a perfect picture of the way marriage works. That if life is on mission for Jesus... Marriage is about mission. It's about missional partnership. Which is why adultery is in a sense an abandonment on the front lines. It's a desertion from the foxhole, as it were. Leaving someone vulnerable. Here's the fourth thing the Bible teaches. It tells us that sex is powerful and it binds souls. It was there in the, in the passage we read from 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or don't you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. The way the Bible talks about sex is it shows that it has a profound power at the level of your soul, the deepest part of you, as it were, the very roots of your being. And that it was particularly designed to be a kind of covenant cutting act. Now that, that might strike you as slightly weird language and I need to explain. Whenever covenants were made in the Bible, one of the things that accompanied a covenant was a cutting action. It might be the killing of an animal and even cutting it in two pieces. When God formed a covenant between himself and his people, the Israelites, what was cut off and makes you wince even just to mention it was the foreskin. 
And the circumcision was the mark, the cutting mark that symbolized this people belongs to this God. And here's the moment at which that is marked. And you ask, well, if marriage is the deepest covenant relationship that we can know on a human level, where is the cutting? Where is the shedding of blood? And the answer is actually in the sex act. Actually, it's not uncommon for somebody who is a virgin, a woman who is a virgin, to bleed the first time she has sex because of the hymen being torn. And of course, all of this is deeply symbolic in biblical thinking for the power of sex within the marriage to be the binding force between two people and to continue to bind you soul to soul for the rest of your lives. Which is why the Bible says if you sleep with people, it's not just that you've enjoyed a momentary of physical pleasure, but rather that you've bound yourself to that person, flesh to flesh, body to body, soul to soul. It's not that that's, in a sense, something you can't deal with before God, but it's a reality nonetheless that you need to own up to and recognize. And so adultery on those terms, where you sleep with other people, is a form of treason, a kind of covenant treason. And we understand in our, in our society that if somebody plots against their nation, they're guilty of treason, of trying to pull down the institution of their own country. But there is no more institution more fundamental than the marriage relationship to human society. And adultery is treason against that, the breaking of the deepest form of covenant that binds lives and families and society together. And here's the last thing. The marriage and sex in the in the Bible, are there for the point of having children. It's not the only reason, but it is a significant one. And it's becoming increasingly difficult in our world to understand the connection between sex, marriage, and childbirth because these things have been separated out and distinguished one from another. But of course, biologically, they all belong together. And when we approach this purely from the individualistic, modern way of thinking, the personal angle, we don't get it. We don't get um, why children are kind of important or why they're necessary or belong in this discussion. And of course, you could, you could think, well, perhaps we could imagine other ways that we could raise up kids in the world. We could just have insemination farms where, where women are set aside to give birth and, or to, we could have communes where it's taking place or we could grow babies in the lab. But every one of us knows in our heart of hearts that the ideal context in which a child grows and flourishes is one in which they have a mother and a father who love each other passionately and who are committed to each other even before they're committed to you as their child. And that is the way in which you will grow most whole and most complete. Which is why adultery is not just a sin against the person that you're married with, but it's a sin against everyone around you and even your children and even your children's children and your children's children's children because the consequences spill on in the pain and the breakdown and the way that people are affected by this. And I know this even in my own family, how divorce in my grandparents affected my dad and how that affected him and how those, that impact has trickled on. But for the grace of God, I thank Jesus that God saved him at a young age and it changed his whole outlook and direction in life. But I still see the effects of the pain of, of that marital breakdown. And you still feel it. Like how 
it changes lives and it changes them irreversibly. When we mess around with things as powerful as this. And friends, all I've tried to do so far is just to kind of put some blocks in the bottom of your mind of why we understand these things to be so significant and so potent. But I want to now drill down a little bit deeper in terms of our own encounter and experience with the reality of our sexual brokenness. How do we come to terms with that? People tend to think that if the, the Old Testament is a bit harsh, but the New Testament, thankfully, has light relief for us and, and lightens the load. But strangely enough, that's not at all how the whole thing works. When Jesus is talking about adultery, he makes it seem much harder. He makes the whole thing much more high stakes. He says to us, you've heard that it was said you shan't commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What on earth did Jesus mean? Let me just try and narrow this down for us. I don't think that Jesus meant that sexual desire in and of itself is wrong at all. That desire is a God-given one. I don't think that Jesus meant that recognizing somebody else's sexual attractiveness and beauty or handsomeness is, is in any way sin in and of itself. Of course, the authors of the Bible often talk about people who are attractive. It talks about Rebecca as being lovely in form and beautiful and Esther as well and David being handsome and ruddy, which means, of course, he had red hair. And it, this is the kind of, the, the Bible's just, these authors knew and they understood what attraction was and they wrote about people who were attractive. It's not wrong to look at someone and see, see that they're, they're beautiful, handsome, or whatever it is that you recognize. That in and of itself isn't sin. Temptation isn't sin. Martin Luther put it like this. He said, you, can, you can't stop the birds flying over your head, but you can stop them nesting in your hair. And what he meant was that temptations will fly at you all day long or fly over you all day long. It's not sin until you allow this thing to settle, settle in your heart and, and start to form the seed of a desire. So what is Jesus saying when he says, when he raises the bar so much higher and says, no, no, it's not just the act of adultery that's a problem. It's the lustful intent. And he's saying something like this, that lust is wrong when we start to desire to act in ways that are contrary to God's law. In other words, to, we start to desire to have sexual relations with a person who we are not married to. And that might seem harm to, har, harsh to you. It certainly feels convicting, doesn't it? You think, well, in that case, who of us is innocent? But it makes sense when you think about the way sin works. In the book of James, he tells us, he unfolds the way sin begins. And he, put, he puts it like this. He says, every person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. What he's saying is using the image of a child being conceived. And he's saying, a desire in and of itself is just the very start. It's like the sperm reaching the egg. Except what is conceived in you is something ugly and something that you no longer feel in control of. And as this thing grows, 
eventually it has to be born. The more you feed the desire, the more you allow the desire to sort of grow in your heart, eventually you have to give birth to it in some act. And then as that happens, this act begins to dominate your life, take control of you, and eventually sin leads to death. And friend, here's the warning that comes with this. Sin, if left uncontrolled and untempered and not dealt with by God's grace in the gospel, it grows. It grows in your life. What started as a desire, just the inkling, just a small flame, grows in your life until the inevitable result is some kind of death. Sometimes that happens literally for people. People who have no control over their desires, their desires do lead them to death, don't they? You can think about many people in our city who give themselves wholly over to desires that control them. And what happens to them? Eventually they die. Eventually those desires kill them, whether it's eating too much, whether it's sleeping with anything that lives, breathes, and moves, whether it's taking drugs to just numb pain, whatever it is, these things do eventually kill you. But more importantly than that, he's saying it gives birth to a kind of spiritual death. So friends, where do you stop this thing? Do you stop it when you've given birth to something that is no longer in in your control, a kind of a monster that eats you? Or did Jesus, was he onto something when he said, no, 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 the problem, friends, is, is right when it began. Was it the root? Was it the seed of this thing when it started in your heart? If you're still not convinced on that, just ask yourself this question, a bit of a thought experiment. What would the world be like if we didn't lust? If we could just take lust away overnight, what would the world be like? Our children would be safe. Marriages would be secure. You'd enter the workplace knowing that you would be judged on your abilities, not on how attractive you are. There'd be no Me Too campaigns. There'd be no lurid comments or dirty looks. There'd be no feeling of being unsafe in the presence of someone stronger or dominating. If we could do away with this overnight, don't you see how all the ill effects that come from this desire would be So I, I, I don't in any way, I don't apologize even for a second for the way Jesus talks about this. He was right. The problem is with us, friends. He was right. It's the lust that we need to deal with. Of course, the actions are important, but it's the heart. It's the beginning. It's the seed that we've got to deal with. And so whenever we gather, my assumption is that there are people in the room who are experiencing, and I think it's probably all of us, a brokenness to some degree in this area. Maybe you're somebody who you've done things that, that you regret and they'll haunt you. Things that hang over you in your imagination and your memory that you wish you could undo, but it is too late, you feel. For others of you, there's a brokenness not because of things you've done, but because of things that have happened to you. Things that were done to you. 
And the Bible recognizes both of these things. It recognizes the sins we do, but it also recognizes the feeling and the sense of defilement when things are done to us that should never have happened. Maybe you're somebody who recognizes that you have desires that you feel have run out of control. You you don't have control over them. Or someone who, in your walk with God, you find that you constantly disqualify yourself because of the sense of shame that hangs over you. I was reading this book by Mark Regnerus, who's a a sociologist. I've got no idea if he has a faith or not, but his book was published by Oxford University Press. It's a secular book. And his area of speciality is understanding changes in the way we, we view sex as a society, particularly in the Western world. He conducts research, he looks at statistics, he interviews thousands of people. One of the things that would seem to you obvious, of course, is that as we've grown more and more secular as a a society, which is to say God has been removed and distanced from our mind and our thinking, the world has become more two-dimensional in the sense of material and no spiritual element. The more secular we've become, the more, of course, we've been given over to what's described as a sexual progressiveness. The more and more there are no boundaries around sex. The boundaries are being torn down and and thought to be kind of irrelevancies. And these things have moved hand in hand, haven't they? We've seen it. We all know. We can recognize it in an instant. And most people, he says, view the causation in that direction. That the more secular we become, the more likely we are to be sexually progressive. The more likely we are to kind of um, push the boundaries. And he says, actually, the more he's looked into this and the more he's understood... He says it actually seems to be the exact opposite the way this works. And what this means is this. The more that sex and sexual brokenness and sexual sin, as the Bible describes it, begins to seep into people's lives, the more secular we become. And yet we may, as our relationship with God withers or even dies, we may then try and put explanations on on it Post hoc, which is to say after the event and say, yeah, I I have intellectual doubts about God. But the reality is that at at root, it began began with with waywardness. It began with sin that, that grew out of your control. It began with experimentation. It began with desires that you didn't know how to deal with. And he says the direction moves in that way. And I find it fascinating that a man who's, to my knowledge, isn't writing as a Christian has recognized that because this is something that the Bible shows us. That the more we give ourselves over to desire, the further we feel from God. To the point where doubts begin to afflict you. And shame begins to cover you. And eventually your relationship with God feels like nothing. Either you grow cold to Him, or you feel so ashamed that you run away from Him. But either way, what was a living relationship has withered and died to something that is barely recognizable anymore. And you think, what did I lose? How did I lose it? I think, friends, the more I think about this, the more I realize that this is the front line of one of the greatest problems in our day and age for, for Christians. And what I mean by that is that, you know, every generation... If we 
seem to be engaged in some kind of spiritual war. At every generation, the front lines of battle are in, on different issues. Sometimes they're around some intellectual issue. Sometimes they're around some political issue. But in our day and age, the line where we are most at war with the world in terms of the fight for our spiritual life is in this area of sex. And what that means is that so many people are taken down and taken out of service to Christ because they can't stand in this area. So many of us are diminished in our walk with him and diminished in our spiritual power and authority because we give our lives over to these things. And there's tragedy in that. There's heartbreak in that. It means that what should be a glorious bride of Christ, the church in holiness, passionate devotion to Jesus, becomes a diminished thing. A thing which more and more resembles the world in which we live, that is more and more at the spiritual temperature of the world in which we live, where people have half-hearted commitment to God, where the prayer life is sapped of all joy and energy, where there's no real desire to engage with God on a day-to-day basis. And it sets my mind to wondering, what if? What if overnight we could, we could just click our fingers and deal with this issue in our church? In my own life, in all of our lives, if we could be rid of lust and of the sexual brokenness that can characterize us, what if overnight we could pull it out? And I think, I think we'd have a radical church. I think we'd have a church that is red hot in passion for Christ. I think all of the apathy and cold-heartedness and lukewarmness that so often characterizes us would disappear in an instant. I think we underestimate how much this has changed our outlook and our relationship with God. I doubt that there's a man here who hasn't done battle with the dragon of pornography. And many women too. I suspect that for most women you feel the constant intense pressure to be sexually alluring. To be more desirable. Because this is the world and the the soup we swim in. The messages that we're told, this is where your worth lies. For anyone who has children, you can see how this is the front line. Because you think, how do I raise my kids? How do, I, how do I even begin to raise my kids to prepare them for the forces of sexual desire and lust that are all around us now? And if we were to sit there, we'd, we'd, we'd grow despairing, wouldn't we? But when Paul was writing to these Corinthians, he says, he talks about the problems that they had. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And Paul, Paul was writing to a world in, in Corinth that was at least as if not more sexually broken than the city we live in and the lives that we live. And yet he's saying, you walked away from it. God healed you, he bound you, he changed you, he washed you, he justified you, he sanctified you. Which is to say he entirely changed your life from the inside out. Which is why 
As much as I see that this is an area of battle and a dark area, I don't despair. Because I think that the gospel of Jesus is powerful enough to get you out of it. How does he change us? I hope you're asking that question if you recognize anything of what I've described in your own life. How does Jesus change us? Well, friends, there's two things we have to confront right from the very start. Denial and despair. Denial is when you, you have some issue in your life around the area of your desire and around lust, but you, you excuse it, or you cover it over, or you, you imagine that it's not such a big deal, or you imagine that God isn't so worried about it. That's denial. And all that does is it lets this thing grow and grow. David Powelson, who's a Christian and a psychologist and a counselor, speaks about lust as being like a dragon. The more you feed it, the more this thing grows until eventually it consumes you. Friend, if you let denial rule the day, if you don't acknowledge what's going on in your life, this thing will grow to control you. But the flip side to it is that so many of us recognize what's going on in our life, but what we feel is something like despair. We say, I, I can't change. I've tried to change. God knows I've prayed. I've battled. I've fought. But I keep falling into the same things. And eventually that gives way to utter despair when somebody says, no more, I, can't, I, can't be, I can never be free. I can never walk away from this thing that's dominated my life. Jesus, Jesus is constantly confronting denial and despair when he deals with people in the Gospels. He deals with the issue of denial because he is always willing to call sin what it is. As kind as Christ is, as loving as he is, as merciful he is, he never shies away from calling sin, sin. And you see it even in the area of sex and, and sexual brokenness. You remember how he met the woman at the well? And this woman had had five husbands and the man that she was living with at the time was not her husband. And Jesus, in a moment of prophetic revelation, sees her and knows exactly what her situation is. Because the Holy Spirit speaking to him zeroes in on the most important thing about her life. The thing which would be the barrier between her and God. The sense of shame she carried and the brokenness she felt about her life. And Jesus doesn't in some kind of polite way just skirt around this issue. He goes straight to the heart, which is how he would want to deal with you. He doesn't want you to cover this thing over. He wants you to bear it to him in the way that that woman had to with him. Because he saw right into her. But at the same time, having exposed sins in the heart, Jesus then doesn't like leave us in the mud to despair and to struggle in a sense of failure, in a sense that we can never be fixed. Again and again, he runs to people with the, with the solution. I think particularly of that precious story of the woman who was caught in adultery and how she's dragged before Jesus probably half clothed and certainly weeping and ashamed and on her face on the ground. And Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees around, says, whoever's without sin can cast the first stone. They all begin to disperse because they know that he's, he's called them out. But then he, he speaks to her and he says, woman, who is there to condemn? Neither do I condemn you. Now go 
and sin no more. Jesus won't leave you in your denial. He wants to confront you, but neither will he let you fall into despair. And friend, the one thing I want you to come away from tonight is with a sense of great hope. You could be freed on the spot, or it could be a battle that may take a while, but you can be free. By the grace of God, you can be free. And the Bible, through the gospel of Jesus, prescribes us with a simple way, a simple path out of these things. And it begins, first of all, with confession. In Psalm 32, David is obviously wrestling with some kind of sin that he's fallen into. And describes the agony and the pain of what it's like to sit in the squalor of your sin. He says, when I, when I kept silent, in other words, when I, when I hid it, when I was in denial, when I was excusing my sin, he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. So he feels a deep ache and agony that wells up inside him because of his brokenness and his sin. Such that he even feels his very strength, his physical strength wasting away. He said, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The God who wants to, to, to be towards us in favor and kindness, he says, rather was, was weighing on him with a heavy hand. was almost crushing him, squeezing the life out of him. He felt his, his physical state deteriorating. He felt himself weighed down under the burden of his sin. But there comes a turning point in a moment for David. Because he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That simple act of confession has unbelievable power. One of the ways I imagine it is like, have you ever been in an experience where you've been, you felt like you were drowning or you felt like you were, you were so desperately in need of air that you could, you were almost in physical agony for the next breath? You ever been caught under a wave in the tumble of a wave when the thing holds you down under it and the power of a wave so, and it feels like an eternity? The minute you can get your head above water and you breathe out the stale air and you gasp in fresh air, it's an extraordinary feeling of relief. And this is what I think David is describing when he says, I I acknowledge my sin to you. I breathed out the staleness and rancid air of my sin. And then I breathed in grace. kindness of God. When I was a kid, I used to, on a few occasions, had these horrible boils. A boil is a staphylococcus infection just below the surface of the skin. And it becomes a hardened pustule, red and inflamed. And I had one on the back of my leg at the back of my knee, which meant that I could barely even straighten my leg because of the excruciating pain when this thing was stretched. And it was horrendous. 
these things get harder and redder and bigger and more angry until they have a little tip to them called a head which looks like the top of a volcano. But in the end, the thing, the thing is not dealt with. My dad, in his kindness, knew I needed to suffer a little bit before I could get better. And my dad was a diabetic. He had little needles that he used to use and he, he took out a clean needle. They pinned me to the sofa as about a 10-year-old boy pinned me to the sofa on my front, took a needle and drove the thing into this boil on the back of my leg. And you can imagine the rest. <laughs> Sometimes it takes suffering, the agony of the moment for relief and healing to begin to come. And that's where the gospel begins. It begins with, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. That's only where it begins though. As part of that is acknowledging your sin to God. The, mo- the main part of it is that. But there's also the power of confessing your sins to, to others, to a trusted brother, a trusted sister, so they can journey with you in healing. James 5 talks, says that we confess our sins for our healing. The first step that the gospel prescribes is the confession. The second one is Repentance. And what that means is that it's not enough that you feel sorry for the things that you've done wrong. Paul describes two kinds of sorrow. He says there's worldly sorrow which leads to death. And godly sorrow which leads to repentance, transformation. And the problem is it's not always easy to know the difference in your heart. Worldly sorrow is the kind of sorrow where you really just feel sorry for yourself for having been found out. Or for suffering for the wrong things you've done. And I can only imagine how much worldly sorrow there is at the moment going on in men's lives for being called out for this hashtag me too thing. Men who thought that they were safe have been called out publicly and there must be all kinds of defensiveness and anger and worldly sorrow that's gone on in many of those lives, men's lives. And they issue these statements, public statements. I regret the hurt I've caused. But you know, the Bible says that's not enough. It's not enough. If it stops there, it's just worldly sorrow. The Bible says it's got to go towards something different, which is godly sorrow. The Holy Spirit birthed ability, resolve, and determination that your life must change and that you will kill this sin by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. You ever heard of Augustine? He was one of the greatest theologians of church history, a North African man, who when God saved him, he found him in kind of, squalor of his lifestyle. He was given over to his passions. He was sleeping with lots of people. He was, he was a wreck in many ways. And God began to speak to him and change him and change his life. And Augustine writes about it like this. He says, as I prayed to you for the gift of chastity, which is sexual control, sexual purity. He says, I'd even pleaded, grant me chastity and self-control, but please, not yet. I was afraid that you might Hear me immediately and heal me forthwith of the morbid lust which I was more anxious to satisfy than to snuff out. And I just admire his honesty that for all time he's just told us the the real inclination of what was going on in his heart. He was feeling sorry for himself basically and he wanted to have his cake and eat it. He wanted to know God but also continue to indulge the things which he knew were wrong for a time. God dealt with Augustine. 
What he's got to move you to is not just the ability to confess what you've done to God, but then move you to repentance, which is the willingness, the desire, the resolution that this has to change. And of course, I understand that there's all kinds of complexity in how that happens. Some of you need to journey with a friend, with a a counselor or with a pastor for a time to enable you to just lift you up out of the mud every time you fall and speak the gospel to you continually until you are strong enough to stand on your own feet. Some of you will be able to walk away from stuff today. The Bible tells us that part of repentance is the willingness to cut off the source of sin. If you haven't cut it off, then you've not really repented. You might think you're sorry for your sin, but until you're willing to take radical actions to deal with the root, whether it's the places you go, the apps you access, the people you meet with, the person in your life who who you are interacting with, whatever it is, unless you're willing to cut them off, then you haven't really repented in Christ's eyes. Because you're leaving the door open like Augustine was. Heal me, but not yet. You're leaving the option there so that you can run back when you need it. Which is why Paul said in the, the part we read for 1 Corinthians 6, he says, flee sexual immorality. Just pick up your stuff and run away as fast as you can in the opposite direction. If you keep turning back towards the places and the people and the context where you have sinned and looking in that direction, you, you'll fall again. And of course, so often in these areas, the sin begins with that that look over the the shoulder, doesn't it? As far as I can tell, it's the only sin in the Bible that we're told to flee from. Not do battle with, but to run away from. Like you're running for your life. We confess, we repent. But friends, we also have to believe This is where the penny sometimes doesn't drop for some people. Why they find themselves in constantly in, in frustration and despair and cycles of sin. Because if you walk away from God with still carrying the shame of the things you've done, then in a sense you're doomed to repeat those things. But Christ wants to bring you to a place where you're healed entirely. What I mean is, imagine this, you're you're on the operating table. And confession has taken place. You you acknowledge you need to be there. Repentance has begun. Your chest has been cracked open. The surgeon has begun to work on your heart. But you can't just leave it there. You can't get up off that table Cracked open with all your organs on display. You're not done until you can get off that table bound up and healed. And the crucial part of what the gospel does for us and the power of the gospel is that Christ doesn't want to leave you on your face in the mud. He doesn't want you to feel shame anymore for the things you've done wrong. He doesn't want you to carry the guilt. He doesn't want you to carry the condemnation because the accusation itself will be the cause of your future downfall. He wants you rather, having left these things at the foot of the cross, to recognize that Christ is enough. 
Many people carry their sins with them, even having confessed them to God, carry them with them as burdens they feel, almost like a self-martyrdom. Like I need to work out the cost of my own sin by punishing myself with guilt and shame and flagellating myself and, and crawling through mud and across broken glass until I feel like I've atoned for the wrong I've done. But all of that is rubbish because it's not recognizing that when Christ bled his lifeblood out on the cross, he bled enough blood to cover the sins of the world. Friend, you have to at some point recognize and acknowledge and receive the love of God that covers your sin. That flings it into the deepest part of the sea that says that I will remember your sins no more and stand with the dignity of being a child of God. And it's when you're in that place, basking under the kindness of a father who loves you and is kind to you, that you can have spiritual strength. That you're able then not only to walk free yourself, but to help others who are caught up in these things. Because isn't that the ultimate aim? Not that we, just that we would be free, but that we are able to lend a hand to people who are broken and hurt in this area and lift them up out of the pit. And the more you've known the love of God, the more you can speak this love into other people's lives. Preach the gospel to them. I want to say one last thing before we close. It's important to understand that there is an aspect of this being, typically being a journey. David Powelson puts it like this. He says, one key to fighting well is to lengthen your view of the battle. If you think that one week of shock and awe combat will win this war of redemption, you're bound to be disappointed. If you're looking for a magic, easy answer, a one and done solution, you'll never really understand the nature of the honest fight. He says, God works organically in our lives. He works step by step. He walks with you. He's always interested in how you take your very next step. He goes on to say, some people leap like gazelles in progress out of these areas of sin in their lives. But other people trudge. They, they kind of make steady progress. And other people crawl. And some people are just standing still. But at least you're facing the right direction. And I want to remind you of that, friends, because it's different for all of us. And It would be a tragedy if you came out of this with great hope today and then fall tomorrow and then think, well, that's it, I'm done. The gospel doesn't have the power to change me. But if you turn your face to Jesus, involve the right people in your life and understand the power of the gospel to change you, friend, you will walk out of this. Of that, I am absolutely certain. There is no sin that Jesus cannot deal with. And he wants to deal with you.